There's been a huge surge of investments in the private space, which has led to an acceleration in the number of unicorns or businesses which are valued at over a billion dollars. There is, of course, some steam that's been coming off that sector because of what's happening to tech globally. But I do think that the medium and long-term prospects are still very exciting in, in that space. Welcome to Well Said, discussions with investors from across Wellington Management about market and geopolitical cross-currents and the long-term research required to make sense of them. I'm your host, Thomas Mucha. According to the UN, India is set to pass China as the world's most populous nation sometime in 2023, with more than 1.4 billion people. And Prime Minister Narendra Modi has been outspoken in his ambition to make India a developed nation sometime over the next 25 years. Meanwhile, the U.S. and Europe have been seeking to strengthen ties with New Delhi as great power competition with China heats up amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Then, of course, there are climate concerns, the lingering fallout over COVID, and a host of other issues that make India one of the most interesting places in the world from an investment and many other perspectives. Now, to help sort this all out, I'm joined today by my colleague Tushar Potter, a macro strategist based in our London office and who leads Wellington's efforts in thematic analysis and sector-based macro research for India, as well as a number of ASEAN countries. Tushar, welcome to Well Said. Thank you very much, Thomas. Very excited to be here. Let's start, Tushar, with India's macro and domestic political situation. Now, India's year-over-year growth has been slowing a bit. It's still a relatively brisk 7%. And as you noted recently in a blog post here at Wellington, India has deleveraged its debt and strengthened its balance sheet. So what's behind the momentum? I think India is coming out of a multi-year period of low growth, which was hobbled by very high debt ratios, bank balance sheets, which were overextended, and corporate balance sheets, which were also, after the boom between 2003 and 12, needed to deliver. And India has gone through that process now. The balance sheets are much stronger. So credit growth remains quite strong. You know, in the mid-teens, corporate profitability is strong and households are spending. They're spending on consumer durables and staples. So there is a lot of catch-up and pent-up demand that's coming out because of these. I also think that there has been a change in the real estate cycle. India went through several years of a downturn in the real estate sector. And as we know, that that's a key driver of economic growth and jobs. And that has turned around over the last two years, especially during the pandemic. Because of easier liquidity, low interest rates, greater affordability, the real estate cycle is now more positive. And that's leading to greater investment. It's leading to greater jobs. And it is leading to a virtuous cycle. And finally, I think the export cycle is also very strong, driven by India's strength in IT services, which is also contributing to overall GDP growth. So you paint a pretty positive picture here, Tushar. And yet it's a very challenging global macro backdrop. To your thinking, what are the speed bumps here and and what's holding India back from accelerating even more? As always is the case with India, there are a lot of challenges. You know, it is still a relatively poor country. 
And the impact of COVID has been quite negative in the sense that it has hurt the bottom part of the population much more, both in terms of healthcare, in terms of loss of jobs and livelihoods. And so India is sort of seeing what I call a K-shaped recovery, where there is part of the economy that's growing very fast, but then there is another part which is at the bottom. They are not consuming as fast, and and that's holding back growth. A couple of other points to mention. One is that India is a huge consumer of energy, and it is a net importer of commodities. So the fact that commodity prices have gone up is affecting not only the growth dynamic, but also the current account and the fiscal accounts. And then, of course, India is also a capital importer. And so rising interest rates means that capital becomes more difficult to access, both the price and the availability of capital. And finally, I think the impact of climate change. India had a very large heat wave the early part of this year in March and April. And then it had floods in August, September in the southern part and in the northwestern part, the areas adjoining Pakistan. So I think climate change and erratic weather patterns will also be a big risk to the growth dynamic both this year and in the medium term. But overall, the, the positives in the economy are outweighing those, those negatives at the moment. Oh, yes, absolutely. I think that there is an economic momentum that's being driven by both household demand as well as corporate demand and investments as well as consumption, which is driving growth despite all the risks that I mentioned. Now, we can't talk about India, Tushar, without mentioning politics. You know, India has its share of domestic, political, and social turbulence, much of which has been endemic over the years gaping economic disparity and inequality, persistent ethnic strife, growing accusations of fundamentalism, authoritarianism, and majoritarianism by the ruling BJP. So how do these challenges on the political side, on the social side, affect India's growth and development? And how do they factor into your market research and analysis? That's a great question, Thomas. So I think one thing to point out is that India is going through a remarkable period of political stability in the sense that Narendra Modi is the predominant leader with no challenger in sight. His party, the BJP, is the predominant power in India with no challenger, again, in sight. Now, there are some positives of that and several negatives. And as you mentioned, that the policies of both Modi and his government are fairly right-wing, and that is creating issues both on the social front as well as on the religious front, especially for minorities. There is also a lack of intellectual debate in India, which comes when you have a very predominant party, which is in in power and, and in charge. I do think that this is a medium to long-term negative for India. However, it is not having a short-term impact on growth. In fact, the political stability is actually leading to a greater certainty for businesses and households. So yes, there are several challenges, uh, including the rise of inequality, but the lack of political fragmentation is leading to a better investment climate overall. So this political stability leads to you know, greater certainty that policies will be implemented, carried out through fruition. How do you think about uh, these policies, particularly the macroprudential side of things? You know, do you think they're contributing effectively uh, to stability in credit, stability in asset prices, this new real estate cycle that you mentioned? You know, what, in your view, under the Modi government is working well 
and, and where do they still need improvement? I would say that there were a number of policies that were implemented in the past, which were of dubious quality, and there have been mistakes made which have been rectified subsequently. One example I would like to give is of the demonetization that the government attempted in late 2016, where it banned currency notes, which were the most dominant forms of circulation almost overnight. And that led to significant problems for the population as well as for the economy. There's a pretty sharp drop in money supply after that. And that caused slowdown in growth, which took some time to recover from. There's also been a spread of the digital economy in many different segments, including in finance. Digital payments have been growing as a share of GDP and as a share of financial transactions. The central bank was very careful about leverage during the period immediately preceding COVID. And that led to a tightening in in credit conditions, which led to the slowdown. I think over time, those conditions have relaxed and that has allowed for credit growth to come back and for the real estate cycle to start. So I think there's been a history of both good and bad policies, but it seems to me that the government has understood the mistakes it has made in its first term and has avoided the same economic policy mistakes in the second term, at least thus far. So Tushar, you mentioned the digital leap forward. You mentioned the focus on technology in terms of policy. I'd like to shift the discussion here a bit to India's markets. What are you focused on here? I mean, what impact do these these tech industries and others have on India's future development? How important is it from a markets perspective? I think it's really exciting. I think India is going through digital leap as you said, where it is sort of skipping several stages of development uh, and, and going to the frontier of technology. The classic example is that India really did not have landlines. It just jumped directly from having nothing to mobile phones. And now most of the population has a mobile phone. And this is a 1.4 billion population. Similarly, e-commerce, without going into physical bricks and mortar retail, it jumped a couple of steps to go directly into e-commerce and then into payments. It skipped several stages of credit card and other forms of check payments, etc., and went directly from cash to digital. So I think you can see that across sectors and across technologies where because of technological progress, the speed of catch-up has accelerated, whether it's in finance or in commerce or even in health tech and ed tech. So I think it's a very exciting area and there is a lot of growth opportunities In the private space in particular, there's been a huge surge of investments in the private space, which has led to an acceleration in the number of unicorns or businesses which are valued at over a billion dollars. There is, of course, some steam that's been coming off that sector because of what's happening to tech globally. But I do think that the medium and long-term prospects are still very exciting in in that space. So that leapfrogging, clearly a, a key theme, not only for the economy, but for markets. But we're also seeing, Tushar, a lot of industry consolidation across a number of sectors, manufacturing, banking, telecom, even retail jewelry, which is so important to the consumer segment in India. So help us understand why this is happening and what it might mean for investors. We have to go back a little bit to India's economic history. And that history was dominated by a preference for small scale. And that came from a big focus by policymakers on the farmer and a small-scale industry. So there were actually barriers put for companies to increase in scale. That meant a limit to growth. 
because if you don't grow big, you know, how are you going to grow? And it also meant inefficient allocation of resources, both capital and labor. That has been changing over time. So I think it's, it's a very good trend that there is greater scale, that a very informal economy is now transitioning to a, a more formal economy. Technology is definitely helping in that transition. I think the fact that there is greater capital availability for the large players is allowing them to grow bigger and to consolidate. I do think that this has positive benefits in terms of its impact on efficiency and better allocation of capital and labor. However, that does leave the question of what happens to the tail or the informal sector that gets left behind. I think that that is where government policy and safety nets will have to work to improve their situation. I wrote a paper about six years ago, which argued that India was one of the largest informal labor markets globally, with about 80% of its labor force being employed in the informal sector, particularly in agriculture. As that formalizes, that means that they get better healthcare benefits, they get better pension benefits, they get better on-the-job training, there's greater certainty of income. So I think that there are many benefits to formalization to scale. Yeah, we'll have to keep watching that as the social and political implications of this transition are clearly a big factor in India. So too is manufacturing, of course. The Made in India slogan is becoming a bigger focus for the government as well, making everything from iPhones to combat helicopters right there in India. In fact, you know, there's a lot of speculation that India may be poised to supplant China as the world's next manufacturing hub. So besides technology, besides this industry consolidation we're talking about, what else do you think investors should be keying in here as India tries to boost its domestic manufacturing chops? I think manufacturing is a very exciting story and has legs in India, and it is driven by a number of factors. I think the first factor is that India's import of manufacturing goods was extremely high and needed to be reduced. And so the government is focused on import substitution or moving manufacturing onshore to reduce the current account and trade deficits. And so we can see a number of incentives for manufacturers, especially of mobile phones, electronic equipment, things like modems and Wi-Fi's and network routers, et cetera, now locating onshore. A second reason is for global supply chains to pay greater attention to India as part of a China plus one strategy. Given the tensions and lack of reliability during the pandemic of supply chains, global supply chains have realized that there should be some hedging. And therefore, they've been investing in India as a large provider of manufacturing goods. The government is trying to attract greater foreign direct investment in manufacturing through its production-linked incentive scheme or PLI scheme. And that is working extremely well for sectors such as electronics, auto components, and other manufacturing sectors, including low-end manufacturing like textiles and food processing. So... I do think that there is a lot of opportunity in manufacturing today in India, especially for small companies or multinationals who wanted to work in India, but also for Indian listed manufacturing companies that are being able to scale because of the government's incentives and because of markets opening up to them. So as an investment opportunity, I think that there is huge potential in, in manufacturing. What about the national security or strategic geopolitical motives here? I mean, what's in it for India to really bolster this manufacturing sector in that context? I think the first reason is to reduce reliance on imports, especially from China. 
and critical defense equipment and critical inputs, including spare parts. I think India is trying to localize much more. Second is that there is a geopolitical rivalry with China, and there is a need to wean itself away from China and to grow its own domestic prowess. A third reason is that India is a big oil importer. Therefore, it needs manufacturing to compensate for those energy imports. So I think that there are many reasons, both geopolitical as well as geographic, for India to focus on manufacturing. Well, let's dig deeper into the geopolitics, Tushar. You know, that's my favorite topic. It's clearly also an important one for India, uh, given the Ukraine conflict, India's persistent issues with Pakistan, and this historic and lingering crisis situation on the border with China. Let's start with the Ukraine piece of this. Now, India obviously has strong ties with Russia. How do you explain Delhi's position on the war? What are they trying to accomplish here? So I think it's a very difficult situation for India when the Ukraine war started. Now, traditionally, India has had a very strong and close relationship with Russia, stretching all the way back to the Cold War, where India's defense equipment was mostly produced in the Soviet Union. And it got a lot of technical assistance, as well as know-how from the former Soviet Union. So given the very strong links between these two countries, it was put in a very difficult situation during the war as to how to sort of approach it. And I think India's response was that we are going to look at it very selectively based on our own national interests. And I think the fact that energy prices rose quite dramatically meant that India was a big importer of oil from Russia. And the local argument was that if Europe can import gas and other commodities from Russia, then why should India not import oil from Russia? And so I think the local arguments were very jingoistic and nationalistic and looking at the, the national interest. I do think that India had an opportunity to wrap Russia on the knuckles a bit more, the beginning of the war, which it chose not to take. It has taken that much more belatedly. You know, in my view, I think that India could have been more forceful in terms of protecting human rights and its anti-war rhetoric. It has come out with mixed message, which has been a bit confusing. It has focused more on its national interest and not sort of focused on what the UN and its Western allies wanted it to do. A lot of the policymakers in DC that I talk to are increasingly frustrated by India's position on the Ukraine conflict, but their understanding of the short-term economic desires here, particularly on the energy side, particularly as India comes out of the COVID crisis. But longer term, you know, there's an expectation from the West that India will play its part in the Quad, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue. This is this strategic, though technically informal coalition, of course, among the US, India, Australia, and Japan. And this has been a big geopolitical objective of the Biden administration. In fact, the first phone calls that President Biden made after inauguration were to the three other leaders of the Quad. You know, from India's perspective, what do you think are the broader domestic and foreign policy objectives of Quad membership? I mean, is it all security or does this go beyond security to infrastructure development, climate resilience, vaccine cooperation, or, or other issues? So I think the first point to highlight is that Indians generally have a very positive view of America. And that is shown in every survey, is that the population itself domestically has a very positive opinion about America and 
and that could partly be because there's lots of Indians who live in the United States. It can also be because it's been seen as a country which has been at the forefront of technology and military growth, etc., and economic growth. So India has always hankered for or aspired for the same sort of economic growth and same living standards and models. So there is a huge approval rating which informs domestic politics as well. So given the high approval rating that America has in India, it's difficult for any government to not have a positive relation with America. Let me put it in a more positive way. Subsequent governments, whether it's Congress or BJP-led, have had a clear preference for the United States over other global powers. And that, I think, is the underpinning of its relations with the Quad. It sees the U.S.-India relationship as critical for the 21st century. I think another reason why India is very favorably disposed to the Quad is its anti-China view. Just as it is very close to America in terms of its approval rating, China has a very high disapproval rating in India. And it's partly to do with India being a democracy, partly to do with seeing China's competition. But there is clearly a lot of tension between the two countries in Asia. And that has meant that it has moved closer to to the quad than otherwise. A third reason is that Japan and India have also traditionally had very close ties, including the current Prime Minister Modi with you know the erstwhile Prime Minister of Japan, Abe. They were very close. And so Japan is one of the biggest investors in India from a foreign direct investment perspective. So it seems like these are natural allies in many ways. However, having said all this, I think India has several times not delivered things that it should as part of that alliance. It is very good at hedging its bets. And you saw that this year with Russia. That's partly because India's foreign policy has not been very focused. After independence in 1947, it followed a non-aligned movement where it was neither aligned with the US nor with the Soviet Union. And so it's been not sure about which side it wants to be on. And that has muddled the foreign policy stakes. But I think over the last decade or so, it's decidedly moved towards a pro-Western and in many ways, based on your question, a pro-Quad direction. But I still think it has a long way to go. Yeah, it's one of those very important questions out there in the great power world. Which way will India tilt? At what speed will this happen? And what are the regional security and economic implications of this. Now, India is in the crosshairs of geopolitics. It's also in the crosshairs of climate change. Uh, Wellington's research partners at the Woodwell Climate Research Center project increasing risk of heat, drought, water scarcity on one hand, and then extreme precipitation and flooding uh, during monsoon seasons on the other hand. Now, all these climate factors could have devastating humanitarian as well as economic effects. So Tushar, how do you think India is preparing for climate change? And you know what are the key market implications of this? I agree. I think that climate change is one of the biggest risks that India faces. I believe that we are not too far away from you know some major shocks hitting the country. I think that means that there should be a higher risk premium attached to Indian assets, given the uncertainty of this and when it could strike and the extent of, of damage. The way that India is dealing with it is a huge focus on renewables. India plans to be net zero emissions by 2070. But my guess is that it would probably achieve that sooner. Huge investments are going into clean energy, into solar in particular. 
as the cost of solar has come down quite considerably. There's also a lot of investments into hydrogen and more renewable forms of of generating energy. And I think that, you know, weaning itself away from coal, which is still the predominant part of its power generation, is a big policy priority for the Modi administration. And we're likely to see some progress on that. But it's a huge challenge. There is a long, long way to go. I think that India will need a lot of resources and energy to deal with this. I also think that it will need a lot of international support. I I don't think it can do it on its own. So the United Nations, the World Bank, Asian Development Bank, I think the multilaterals will have to come in in a big way to decarbonize the economy. But I think that there is a recognition in, in the highest levels of policymaking that this is an existential challenge. The other side of this, Tushar, and the one that concerns me from a national security perspective and a general human perspective is what this does to human health and those sorts of aspects of climate change. And I'm curious how you're thinking about resiliency, adaptation, you know, making India more able to cope with rising temperatures, water issues, flooding, extreme precipitation, all of that. Is India going to get more resilient? I think that is going to take quite a bit of time to get those policies and infrastructure in place to deal with the kinds of cyclones and climate change impact and drought and floods and heat particularly. We've seen some mitigation efforts, but we're very far away from what needs to be done. So I think that India will need to really invest significant resources into climate mitigation and adaptation, and especially in in its coastal states, which are subject to not only cyclones, but also rising sea levels and threats to livelihoods. All right, Tushar, thank you. I'd like to begin to wrap up our fascinating conversation here with a few questions, more on the personal side, more on on your research process. Uh, So first, tell us about your your career path. I mean, how did you end up uh, in this position of of analyzing such an important country for a place like Wellington? How did you get here? A long and circuitous route, I must say. (laughs) My first job was at the IMF in Washington, D.C., where I was analyzing emerging markets in all parts of the world. From there, I went to the sell side to look at India in particular, but also other countries in Asia and having the opportunity to work from Mumbai for a prolonged period of time, interacting with policymakers, both in the government and at the central bank, and spending a lot of time on the ground in understanding issues, local issues. And that sort of really helped shape me in terms of my thinking and my analysis. And from there, I moved to Wellington as a macro strategist because I felt like it was a great place to be a practicing economist and and to use my skills to good effect. I think, you know, I joined an excellent team. It was a great opportunity to learn from them and also to cover the countries that I knew well and to learn much more about, about investing in them. Circuitous, yes, but also pretty comprehensive. You know, you have been paying attention to India from all these perspectives. So how does that inform your research? And how does the the collaborative environment, uh, the research environment we have here at Wellington impact that process? The best part is that I've been born and brought up in an emerging market and have worked most of my life on emerging markets. So I think I have a better feel for what drives emerging markets. Along with that, a deep love for financial markets. I also take the long view, I think, in terms of structural ideas and thoughts and what drives economies over the long term. 
and not just over the next three months or six months. And that helps me look over or ignore some of the noise in terms of daily news and data so that I can focus more on underlying trends in terms of deep pools of expertise and knowledge in investing in a number of these markets and asset classes, whether it's in bonds or in equities or in FX. I think that we have really deep, deep reservoirs of knowledge here. So I think that having access to both the people here, the frameworks that we've developed, as well as being able to get knowledge and information from policymakers around the world, both through my past affiliations, as well as my recent contacts, I think helps us get an edge over the competition. So what about on the outside of the walls of Wellington? I mean, is there a book you could recommend to share something that may have influenced your thinking about India uh, or helped you gain a deeper understanding? maybe not of India, but of the world in general and how the world works? For people who want to know about India, I would recommend Ramachandra Guha's India After Gandhi. It's a very magisterial book which starts from Gandhi's assassination in 1948 and then, you know, a young nation and how it developed and what sort of went into making it. There's so many other books that I'm not being able to pinpoint one or two. I'm reading this book right now, which is really good, which is Why the West Rules for Now. I think the author is Ian Morris, another massive book, but I think that charts through 3,000 years of history of development in different areas. It's an old book, it's about 10 years old, but I think it's, it's still a pretty good read in understanding why things developed in places where it did, why technology developed in some places and why growth happened in some places. I think it takes you back to the beginnings of civilization almost. Given uh, your long-term focus, Tushar, I can see why a book that goes back 3,000 years would appeal to you. I don't always read books that are that long, but this one was, was something that caught my attention and I thought it was a good read. All right, last question, my friend. If you weren't a macro strategist here at Wellington, what other career could you see yourself pursuing? I would probably say a policymaker where I would be involved in some form with monetary or fiscal or some combination of of those policies. Or I could see myself also to be in education on the teaching side of it, working with students and and developing them. All right, Tushar, thank you so much. Once again, uh, we were joined today by macro strategist uh, Tushar Potter. Thanks again, Tushar. Thank you, Thomas. It's my pleasure. The Well Said Podcast is produced by Wellington Management. The executive producer is Kristen Ganong. Our senior producers are Mark Murphy, Dana Wickstead, and Colin Hopkins. Our sound engineer is Mark Murphy. This episode is mixed and edited by Mark Murphy. You can find this episode, as well as others, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All investing involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Past results are not a reliable indicator of future results. Forward-looking statements should not be considered as guarantees or prediction of future events. This material was current as of the publication date. Wellington assumes no duty to update the content in the event that the information changes. This commentary is provided for informational purposes only. It is not research that is required to be prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, and it is not subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. It should not be viewed as current or past recommendation and is not intended to constitute investment advice or an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to purchase any securities. 
It does not take into account the investment objectives, financial situation, or needs of any particular person. Wellington Management does not provide legal, tax, or accounting advice. The views expressed are those of the speaker and may not reflect the views of others at Wellington. This recording may not be reproduced or distributed in whole or in part for any purpose without the express written consent of Wellington Management. Please refer to the disclosure section of this podcast for complete details.